Well, everyone, we are getting close to the finish of our sermon series titled Questions Jesus Asks. I hope you've enjoyed these uh, sermons. Uh, Jesus definitely asked some pretty good questions. Today he asked one that I think kind of penetrate all of our hearts and challenge all of us here today. He says, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? These four verses we're going to look at come at the end of a sermon. It's, it's called, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the Sermon on the Plain, and it's in Luke chapter 6. And just to kind of give us a little understanding of what Jesus has been saying and who he's been saying it to before we read this, we want to make sure we kind of get it in the context, right? So uh, what's going on? Well, we see that Jesus gathers his disciples earlier in Luke chapter 6, and they, and they come down from a mountain to a level place, a plain, and um, there's... He's, Luke writes, there's a great crowd of disciples. I don't know, 100, 200, 300. There was a lot of people who were called disciples, not just the 12. And then we also see that a great multitude of people from all over the place were there. And what was Jesus doing? They were coming to Jesus, and he was healing them, healing them of physical infirmities as well as mental infirmities. Jesus was declaring that the kingdom of God was here and that he was the one who was bringing it, and it would bring restoration to body and to soul. And then he began teaching them of the blessedness of being a part of this kingdom and of embracing uh, Christ as, as the king and, and um, for, for living in this world, not as one who's just living for their own gain, but for living for the kingdom. And then, and then he goes on to say, you're to love in a totally radical way. You're to love like God. You're to love your enemies. You're to, you're to even love, yes, sinners, sinful people. You're to treat them with mercy. Why? Well, because that's how your Father in heaven uh, treats sinners with great mercy. And you're not to judge. You're, you're not to have this giant plank sticking in your eye while you're pointing to somebody else who's got a little speck in their eye. Uh, he says we're not to be hypocrites. In fact, we're to be fruitful. We're to be like good trees that bear good fruit and not bad, evil trees which bear evil fruit. And then he comes to the passage we will now read, the words that we will now read beginning in uh, passage, uh, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, that you sent your son. We thank you that he has spoken and his words continue to speak to this day. Aided by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to comprehend and understand and, and not just think about what these words mean to the person sitting next to us, but rather what they really mean to, to us as we sit before your face, um, examining your word and applying it to our lives. Uh, we pray for grace and tenderness um, in this activity. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, when you hear the word obedience, what comes to mind? I guess it depends upon your station in life, how old you are, and your circumstances, and the relationships you have. You see, a child and a parent have different conceptions of what obedience is, and so too a student or a principal or a construction worker and their foreman or a basketball star and his coach. Now, for my family lately, the whole focus and kind of conception of obedience uh, has come to center around a, an eight-month-old uh, Labrador retie- retriever named Gus. Uh, Gus is—he's uh, a puppy still—and you know we we've, we've learned from reading a few books that it's really really important, or so the experts say, uh, to train your dog to teach them obedience at a really early age. You see, if, if you don't do that at an early age, well, they, they, uh, they, be, they grow up to be crazy dogs when you can't do anything with them. Uh, evidently, uh, you can't teach an, an old dog new tricks. Now, with, with Gus, it's a little interesting. If, if you watch how he interacts with the five different, quote, masters in his household, he reacts differently. Like with me, he's like, almost always obedient. You know, every now and then he'll like look at me and run the other way, right? Uh, with my wife Leslie, he's just about as obedient. But then when you go down the pecking order of my children, uh, my oldest child, uh, Gus is fairly obedient to her. But by the time you get down to my youngest child, Ella, well, I think Gus just looks at Ella like like she was like part of his litter, <laughs> right? Like, like, like she's another puppy, Yeah. Sit, you're crazy. I'm jumping on you and pulling your hair, right? Um, there are times when there there are times when one of my daughters will give Gus a command and try to picture this. He looks to me as if to say, "Really, do I have to do this?" In which I say, "Yes, Gus. She's one of your masters too." Now. I'm not saying we're puppy dogs compared to Jesus at all, all right? That's just an illustration to help, help make a point. In fact, how much more should we, how much more should people who bow to the authority of Jesus obey him? How much more should we who turn to him and find our life in him, how much more should we live our lives for him, and for his glory, for his pleasure, for his delight? How much more should we listen and obey? And and not out of slavish fear, right? But out of love. And not just when it's convenient, but even when it's hard to obey. Now, if Jesus has revealed himself to the church to be Lord, why is it that we often in the church fail to listen to him. I'm not just pointing fingers at you. I'm pointing them at me as well. We hear from the Lord. We study his word. We get a sense for what he really uh, calls us to do. And we affirm that it is good in our lives, and yet we do not do it. (laughs) Those hundreds of disciples gathered around Jesus heard um, a question meant to penetrate their souls. He says, why do you call me Lord, but, but don't do what I say? The question is for us this morning too, isn't it? 
Jesus says it's not enough to give him lip service. We must give him leg service. We must do what he calls us to do. We must hear what he says and put it into practice. Because Jesus is Lord, we must obey him. We're going to look at that by breaking our time into two areas. First, we're going to look at the expectation of obedience, the expectation of obedience, and then the illustration of obedience. First, the expectation. Now, you would expect a football player who says, coach, coach, to actually do what the coach says, right? You would expect a student who says, hey, teacher, teacher, to listen to the teacher and follow through on his or her instruction. So too, Jesus says, all who call me, Lord, Lord, they should obey. It makes sense. The expectation that Jesus has is that those who would come to him uh, would hear from him, and they would profess the rightness of Jesus and what he says. And the expectation Jesus has is that those who come to him and call him Lord would, would so wrap their lives into his life uh, that everything they think about or long to do flows through uh, their Lord, flows through Jesus Christ. That's the expectation that's voiced in this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus, Jesus is saying that he, he expects those who profess allegiance to him uh, to follow through, but apparently some were not. Let me ask you this. What do you call a person who, who says they highly value something and yet live their lives contrary to it? What do you call the rock star who flies in his private jet to an Earth Day concert? What do, what do you call the congressman who, who, who enacts really stiff tax legislation and then he himself doesn't pay his taxes? What do we call that? We call those people hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. The Bible shows us a long history of hypocrisy in the people of God, a history of half-hearted allegiance Remember, right after God rescued his people out of, out of bondage in, in Egypt, uh, they proved themselves to be stiff-necked. They wouldn't even listen. When God said, go into this land, I promise you, uh, it will be yours, they became fearful, and they said no, and they disobeyed with unbelief. We read the words from Ezekiel, 600 years before Christ. See how they sound so similar to what we have here in our passage. There we read, as for you, son of man... Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their own gain. Hypocrisy was a problem in the early church. Why else would James, the brother of Jesus, say, right, be, uh, but be doers of the word, not hearers only? We see the same thing in the church today. People who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but whose lives very, bear very little resemblance to the life of Christ. People who affirm the goodness of Jesus and, and, and yet live to find goodness in this life as opposed to finding goodness in the life that Christ has for them. 
people who say they stand with Christ, but when the going gets tough, they're nowhere near standing with Christ. Some people would say they're kind of fair-weather Christians. And the difficulty we have with our passage here, though, is trying to figure out what is Jesus really getting at? Who is he referring to in this passage? Uh, Does he have in mind uh, genuine believers who have strayed, or does he have in mind false disciples who really don't believe in Christ? And it's true, just as in Jesus' day, it's true today. There are people who are part of a congregation, yet truly don't genuinely believe in Christ. Certainly, Jesus is talking about them here, isn't he? He's saying, true disciples ultimately listen to what I command, and they do it. But we know this, don't we? We can be true disciples of Jesus, And yet, for a season, find ourselves not listening to Jesus or doing what he, we know he's calling us to do. I don't think there's a a, a single genuine Christian here in this room who doesn't, who could not, would not say there's, uh, there's never been a time in my life where I have not strayed from Christ. I think the reality is, judging from my own life, and, uh, is that, that that happens far more often than we care to admit. We are people who often stray from Christ and his words. So personally, I think Jesus has both these types of people in mind, those who are genuine, who profess faith in Christ, but who are not genuine believers, as well as those who are genuine believers, but yet find themselves straying from him and his voice and his words. And I think that's That's probably pretty much everybody here this morning, right? We fall into one of those two camps. Jesus says to us, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus expects that those who uh, come to him and embrace him as Lord, that they would obey him. It's not only what he asks, but we also see his command here in verse 47. It leads us into a parable. And what we see in verse 47 is, um, is that there is a, a, a progression. There's a, a program. There's a way in which Jesus says we are to live this out in our lives. Look at verse 47, the first part. He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And then he gives us that illustration. But we're not going to go there just yet. Pay attention to the progression of Jesus' words. There's three verbs in here, and they progress us uh, to what uh, true discipleship looks like. The first verb is to come. It's erkomai in the Greek, and that's what we see these disciples doing. It, It refers to the way in which people came in, came to Christ, and they gathered around him. They were drawing near to hear Jesus. Oh, to have the ability to draw near to Jesus. But we have that, don't we? We do that together corporately every Sunday as we, as we gather in and we hear from Christ and the word preached and in the sacraments and in, our, in the songs that we sing. Remember, Jesus promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus said that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be uh, among you. That's the promise of Christ. He is here even now in his spirit with his people. The next verb is akuo, which means to hear. One of the main reasons people came to Jesus, other than having like someone healed in their family, was to listen to him teach. 
Now, hearing is always meant to be an active discipline. It's not passive. You, you, when Jesus speaks, you, you've got to expend some energy to understand what he's saying, right? He often taught in parables, which, which require that you spend some time uh, using your brain to think through exactly what, what is he saying here? How does, what does he mean by these images? And what does that mean for me? Where do I find myself in the parable? Jesus' words demand careful consideration thoughtful reflection, as well as contemplating how they could be applied to one's life. Today we do this regularly, don't we? As we gather for Bible study or we sit under the teaching of God's word, we, we hear, we hear Christ's words spoken anew. We, we hear from God through the prophets and through the apostles and, and we listen and we bring it into our lives. We wrestle with the words of Christ as we're doing even here this morning. We do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, who gives life to these words and presses them deep into our lives. But Jesus is saying something that I think we would all agree with. That is, coming and hearing are not enough. We must respond to the words of Jesus. This is where the third verb comes into play. In the Greek, it's the word poeo, and it, it, it's the main Greek word for doing, for doing something. And so the progression isn't complete without it. It's simply not enough to come and to hear Jesus. That isn't what he's after. What Jesus is looking for is that we would rather come, hear, and then go and do Here's the challenging point that Jesus is making here. It's not enough to come to church and to listen. Uh, What God requires is that we would put things into practice, that we would have a believing response. Jesus means, uh, this means coming to Jesus for who he is. This Thankfully, we have more information than these disciples who were gathered there on the plane that day, right? We have a more full understanding of who Jesus is. He's no ordinary man. He's the divine Son of God sent to redeem the world. And, and when we look to Jesus, and especially even back then when they were seeing him heal, they were supposed to look to Jesus and say, this is a man that I should, I should wrap my life around. He's the one who's able to heal physically and spiritually. He's the one who's brought the kingdom. And, and therefore... I must attach my hopes and dreams to Jesus and where he is taking this world and as well as the people who follow after him. And therefore, uh, a disciple's hopes and dreams are to be defined by this whole kingdom experience. And our hearts are to be transformed by what Christ brings to us. Our hopes and our dreams become wrapped up in him. That's what Jesus is expecting And so therefore, because of this new reality that we experience in Christ, we would be doers, not just hearers. Now, let's be clear on something. No one is saved by doing, right? Uh, Scripture clearly teaches, Jesus clearly points out, um, that there is no way we can work our way into the good graces of God. No, everybody is saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Though we are disobedient, Jesus, the Son of God, was obedient. He was obedient even to the point of death. And as he died on the cross, he took upon himself 
all of the sins of the world, including our disobedience. And because of his obedience, we may now be freely forgiven and brought in to God's family. So we must remember that this is not about going and doing to earn our way into God's good graces. We're saved by grace and through faith in Christ. But here's the deal. Though salvation is a gift of grace um, that we receive by faith, it does have a transforming effect in the believer's life. Here's what Martin Luther said. He said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Why? Because if you trust in Christ, Christ comes and dwells in you. You are no longer the the same person. God has come and taken up residence in your life. Paul writes about this. He says there's this great mystery of the gospel, but it's, uh, it's been revealed to us. And it's what? Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the message of the gospel is that Christ comes and dwells in you. Paul reminds us, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We forget that God dwells in his people. And that, and that um, our daily lives, our lives where we say, uh, Holy Spirit, you dwell in me. Help me to see what you would want me to see today. Help me to live this life that I, I know I've been called to live. Help me to press the gospel deeper and deeper into my life. Have you heard about the uh, Google driverless car? I'll make a prediction. Some of you, the next 20 years, are going to have driverless cars. And that's probably good for some of us. Uh, It's no longer a futuristic pipe dream. There was a journalist who spoke of his recent trip to Mountain View, California, where the Google headquarters are. They've got this cool Lexus SUV, and everything else about the car is is like a normal Lexus, except they've implanted a special computer into it, one that's really quite bright, and they've got special sensors all around the vehicle. And what they did was they, they put a random location of Mountain View into the computer, and the car drove there perfectly, without accident. Here's what the journalist had to say in his comment. He said, the car drove itself significantly better than a new teenage driver. I should, should hope so. But also, and better than a lot of experienced drivers too. It traveled the speed limit, anticipated the moves of other drivers, often long before we would have noticed and made complex judgments about whether it had time to turn safely across a lane of oncoming traffic or to continue through a yellow light. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's amazing. I don't know about you. I kind of like to drive my car. I, you know, I, I couldn't ever imagine a day where I don't like drive. But then again, long trips, you know, Google driverless car, you know, take me to the mountains, right? Uh, that would be fun. Now, as nice as this would be to have a, all that take place, um, in a sense, that's a kind of a picture, a glimpse of, of the goodness of God that is ours through the gospel, that God comes and dwells in us. Christ takes up residence in us. It's, uh, it's, not, as, it's, it's not this, uh, you know, this notion of um, 
you know, just let go and let God, right? This isn't you taking your brain out of your head and just say, I'm just going to live by the Holy Spirit. I'm not even going to think. No, that's not what we're called to do. But God says, uh, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Christ dwells in us. And so our response is to appropriate that, to agree with that, to believe that, to, to ask God to, to show us what is good and right. And when we already know what is good and right, that he would empower us to live and to walk in this world um, according to Christ's standards. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, the motto of Grace Presbyterian Church is alive in Christ. As individuals, yes, we're alive in Christ, but also as a body of people. We are, we are the body of Christ, and we are alive in Christ. And so Christ is our loving and caring master. He is our Lord, and we, and we serve him not out of slavish fear. We serve him by the power of himself in us, which he has given us. What a great gift. And therefore we come and we live according to Christ in his kingdom uh, because he dwells in us. Because he has made us alive, we desire to live for him. That is Jesus' expectation of obedience. Not for the illustration of obedience. After asking the penetrating question, um, Jesus then says, let me show you what this type of person is like. And he gives us an illustration to kind of think about and to put into our lives. He says, what does one look like who comes to Jesus and hears his words and does them? Look at verse 48. He says, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus is saying that all those who are truly alive in him have a foundation in him, and their lives will not be shaken. Do you believe that? That's his promise to us as church. The foundation he calls what? He calls it the rock. Now, did you notice he said that, that, that this man dug down, he didn't say down to a rock, he said the man dug down to the rock. What is the rock that he's referring to? It's, it's not his words of Jesus. It's not, the, it's not the church. Jesus is speaking of what? Himself. Jesus is the rock that wise people build their lives upon. They dig down deep to get to him and then build their houses upon him, upon that foundation. So a proper understanding of Jesus is to see him as the only foundation worthy of building your life upon. And therefore, we must listen and obey him. Jesus demonstrated his rightful authority throughout his life. We see it in the Sermon on the Plain. At the beginning of the sermon, he's doing what? He's healing people, right? Uh, He's got power over the physical and the spiritual realms. And in our passage today, Jesus displayed his divine authority. I don't know if you picked up on it, but here's what Jesus does. He commands his listeners to follow him as if he is God himself, right? Think about it. What would a prophet have said? Prophet would have said, 
These are the words of God. Go and do God's words. Follow them. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, uh, he says, obey me. Now, Jesus is saying, build your life on my foundation. Let me ask you this. Would that not be blasphemy for a, for a person to say, build your life on me? Of course it would, unless, of course, Jesus is divine. Only, the only life we should build our lives on is God himself. We were to have no other gods but the one true God. But Jesus is saying, build your life on me. In, in, a, in a true way, Jesus is, 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 is speaking as one who has authority, divine authority. And the gracious, loving Lord who has divine authority over all things says... When you dig, when you dig deep, when you come to me and lay your life upon my foundation, you will not be shaken. No matter what comes your way, even the great terrible floods of life will not destroy what you have rested upon me. Question is, Do you believe this? Are these just words of some dead teacher? Are they truly words that give powerful hope to you here and now? I mean, Jesus is saying, if you dig down to me, if you seek me, if you seek to, to listen to my words and put them into practice, and if, if you really trust me, your life will be set on such a foundation as nothing in this world could ever shake you loose from. That's quite a claim. He's either a madman or he's right. (laughs) I tend to go with the right, not the madman. Some who profess to be Christians will say, yeah, see, become a Christian and you get a lot of good things. You'll get health and wealth and And, uh, yeah, you just come to Christ and you dig a little foundation and then your life will become some nice little tidy package of enjoyment um, in life. But I don't think that's what we see here in this passage, do we? I think what we see here in this little story is that being alive in Christ is hard work accompanied with great floods. The man is going to build a house, which represents the entirety of his life. But because he has become alive in Christ, he desires to build upon the rock of Christ. And and so what does he do? He digs, and he digs, and he digs. He digs deep. The call to follow Christ and to experience his salvation is akin to digging and digging and digging. Sounds like work to me. I know we live in the age of, uh, of backhoes. <laughs> and you just call a phone number and someone's going to go dig for you. Now, that's not what you say. This is, this is tiring. When was the last time you took a shovel and tried to dig a hole? It takes a while. It's hard. It's tiring. But we're called to dig deep. I think that's why some Christians talk of going deeper with Christ. It's that, that, that image of, of a life that is becoming more and more founded upon Christ and the life that he gives us. You know, one way that Christ gets us to dig deeper 
is that he unravels our lives. He causes calamity to come in. He, he allows these floods to, to invade our turf, so to speak, to, to push up against um, us, our houses that we're building. It's in these trials and circumstances that we dig even deeper. Christian, you've experienced this, haven't you? You've come to Christ. You've placed your trust in him. You delight in him. You've experienced the joy of your salvation. And you hear Christ to call, his call to getting deeper and deeper, to an even deeper foundation in your life. And, and then you feel as if you're there. And then all of a sudden some event happens in your life. I don't know what it is for you. Uh, for me, I've been hit by I've been hit by trucks. Uh, you know, I've had um, my father die. We've uh, you know um, just a lot of different. We've all had these, right? So I don't know what it is for you, but you have these experiences. You feel as if you're at the foundation, and then all of a sudden the floor is taken out from underneath you, and you realize what? I need to dig. I need to dig some more. I know that my Lord is good. I know what He says is true. But in this moment, I need a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. I need to go down, and I need to experience uh, him in the midst of this new circumstance in my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain that anybody here who's gone through those circumstances, how do you come up out of that? By God's grace, you come out with a what? Deeper foundation on the Lord you love. And the words that he has taught us here, you can say, Amen. As I listen to Christ, as I come to him, as I listen to him, and as I put into practice what he has taught me, um, I've experienced this reality in the floods of my life. That my Lord does love me. That it is good to listen to him. That it is good to walk in his ways. That it is good to trust him, even though, even though I can't see why I'm in this circumstances. Even though I don't see a way out, I know that my Lord is true. When we've gone through these trials and with these floods, we get deeper into Christ, and that foundation becomes even more solid and strong. Christian, you've experienced that, haven't you? Sad thing is, not everyone has a solid foundation of Christ. Jesus finished his parable with a negative illustration. He contrasts the positive image with the words, But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, in seminary, they teach it's usually good to finish the sermon on a positive note. <laughs> uh, this is the end of Jesus' sermon. He doesn't end on a positive note. The last words in his sermon are a warning, are they not? Now, the situation that Jesus describes was a common occurrence back in the arid climate of, of ancient Israel. In his commentary, Philip Ryken notes that flash floods are always a danger in the desert, especially near the mountains. When rains fall on the higher elevation, water cascades down through dry riverbeds and into the villages below without warning. When this happens, a house without a solid foundation will collapse instantly. Like some houses, some people do not have a solid foundation. (laughs) 
Remember, Jesus was talking to people who came to him, who called him Lord, 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 which was a double affirmation of Christ's mastery over his lives. These were people who, uh, I guess they bought the t-shirt, you know, and they wore it. And yet, when the difficulties of life come, Jesus says they will most likely depart. The, The storms of life will cause them to really see where their foundation was built. Sadly to say, there's many who attend church who profess Christ as Lord, who call themselves Christian, but whose lives really bear little resemblance to the life of Christ. And you really don't know, you really can't tell these people apart from regular Christians until when. When things are going good, everybody looks the same. Those who profess faith in Christ... Um, whether true believers or not. But when the trials of life come, that is when we find out what foundation a person has built their life upon. Riken says, these people, that they hear Jesus, what he says, but they do not do what Jesus says. And as a a result, they do not have any real foundation for their lives. Soon, Jesus says, they will be destroyed. Some stormy trouble will come, persecution perhaps, or one of life's many bitter disappointments, and their whole world will collapse, including any pretense of really trusting God. If that does not happen in this life, it may happen at death, and it will certainly happen at the final judgment. Jesus called this tragedy, uh, calls this tragedy a great ruin. It's the fatal torment of a lost soul. It doesn't really matter what you think your foundation is. If it isn't Christ, it really isn't a foundation. You know, a lot of people build their, their lives upon academic achievements. There's a lot of things we could point to, but let's say academic achievement. They, young students work hard and they get into the, that really prestigious school and, and, uh, and uh, as a result, they make all these connections and their life just seems to be Uh, you know, all lit up. Everything's available to them. And they're proud of their accomplishments and for having gone to the school. And and they've got a whole peer group of other people who went to this really fancy school. But at the end of, of this person's life, what does it really matter what college you went to at the end of your life? If you're, if you're basing your foundation upon academic achievement, at some point, that foundation will let you down. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're here today and and you profess faith in Christ, but when you really examine your life, your foundation really isn't on him. It's on a career or a relationship or a family or uh, all good things, but they're not to be your ultimate foundation. Unless your foundation is upon Jesus Christ, in the end, in the end, at some point, you will be let down. And far worse than that, you will miss out on the eternal joys of of, of a life in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's a lot at stake. What I hope we've seen this morning is that Jesus is Lord, that is, he is, has divine authority over all, but that also that his authority is a loving and a gracious 
authority, one in which he obediently, out of love for us, took upon himself the sins of the world uh, and died in our place. Hopefully we've seen that Christ really does bid us to come to him and to hear from him, but more than that, to, to go and to put it into practice. You know, the Christian life is a daily struggle of laying hold of the promises of God, listening to them, and applying them in in our own lives, and going out and doing them by the best of our God-given ability. Let's wrap up with this. You know, I began the began this sermon talking about my little puppy dog Gus. You know how cute he is, and um, you know in the Bible, Jesus uses animal references to to talk about his followers. And you know, he doesn't use um, cute, cuddly puppies to describe his followers, does he? Do you know what animal Jesus uses to describe his people? Sheep. Now, I grew up, you know, thinking sheep were great, right? You know, because I never was really around a flock of sheep, right? They're just cute, right? You would think. Actually, sheep are dumb. I mean, really dumb, like beyond like dumb, right? They, they, sheep will put their head down and they get so distracted by a little clump of happiness in front of them, this little clump of grass, and they'll start eating and, and eating and walking. And then before they know it, they're far away from the rest of the flock. They're on some sort of cliff in need of rescue. Or sheep, when they fall down, in some circumstances, a sheep could fall down and be what's called cast. They're upside down, and um, they will die because uh, they're unable to uh, raise themselves up back to their feet. Sheep have short memories. Sheep bite each other. Sheep even bite the master. That's why the master carries a rod and a staff. Sometimes he has to discipline his wayward sheep. Jesus calls us sheep, which means what? He really knows us, right? He knows how we stray. He knows how we get all wrapped up in that little pile of grass in front of us, that, that career or that, or that relationship or that, that hope of whatever. He knows how we get wrapped up in that and, and we find ourselves far away from him wondering, how in the world did I get here? He's not surprised by that. Do you understand? Jesus calls us sheep because we are and he knows that. But he also calls himself what? The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. How good it is to know that the one that we're called to obey with the very entirety of our lives has this understanding of us and yet still desires to be a good shepherd to us. I don't know about you, but that that gives me great joy as we're, we're about ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, it, 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 Christ, Christ gave this meal to us to remind us of, of his ongoing care for his people, his sheep. <laughs> and, and he knows that we need him in our lives. He knows that we need to feed on him. 
my hope is that as we leave here this morning, that we wouldn't necessarily feel beat up. I need to be a better Christian, so I need to go out and do more. No, you're a sheep. You just need to listen to your shepherd and delight in him and follow his voice wherever he may lead you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing, tender, gracious love that you give to us. On our best day, we are not the people we know we should be. On the best day, we do not listen well. On our best day, we hear and even run away. Oh, how we're dependent upon your daily kindness towards us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the the good shepherd. We, We thank you that you are our rock, our firm foundation. Thank you for reminding us that we're foolish to place our life and our trust upon anything um, but you. Strengthen us now in this hour as we depart from here. Uh, May um, our lives be so alive in you that you shine through us, we pray. Amen.